Hi, Remember Me listeners. We know you guys love music, but do we have any vinyl record collectors like me? If so, you need to check out our sponsor, Vinyl Confessions. Vinyl Confessions is a carefully curated online vinyl record shop with a mission to heal the world of its pain one record at a time. This small business has an amazing selection of new vinyl records, everything from classic live shows, amazing jazz albums, and many new releases like Taylor Swift's Fearless album. Vinyl Confessions has given our listeners a 20% off code to go check them out. So you're going to go to vinylconfessions.com. That's vinyl without the I, V-N-Y-L confessions.com and use code RememberMe for 20% off at checkout. Hi everyone, I'm Rachel and I'm Maria and we're the hosts of Remember Me. This podcast is dedicated to preserving the memories of those diagnosed with dementia. We hope this episode helps you feel more connected, provides a deeper understanding, and allows you to learn to accept the good. Always, always accept the good. This is Remember Me. Tonight, we have the incredible honor of having Lauren Miller-Rogan with us. She is a filmmaker, Alzheimer's advocate, and co-founder of HFC. Welcome, Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. (laughs) We are so thrilled, and we were just talking. We are all a part of this awful club. Terrible club. It's a terrible club where we've lost a dear loved one parent to dementia. So you're in good company tonight. We're all Mm -hmm. holding hands virtually. And we are just going to kick off with the question we ask everyone. And that is, what was that first moment that you thought, like, something's not quite right with my mom? Yeah, I remember it. I don't remember it exactly the moment, but it was the weekend of my college graduation. I was graduating from film school. Uh, I went to Florida State and my parents came up, my brother, my aunt and uncle, and everyone was there. And throughout the weekend, she told me the same story about her friend a few times. And I just knew. And her parents, uh, her dad had Alzheimer's and her mom had uh, doctors always sort of flip-flop back and forth between Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, whatever it was, it was dementia and it was terrible. And so I had, unfortunately, a familiarity with the disease or with dementia, I guess. So yeah, she repeated that story and I was like, this is, no, this is not happening. Here we go. But it was. And on such a momentous I know. I wish celebration. I know. I feel like if it wasn't like a milestone, maybe I wouldn't remember it, you know, but, but it colored the weekend in a way. Of course. Right. And how old was she at this time? She was 52. So yeah, you know, we're not expecting these things totally at that point. What did you do next? Did you say, you know, mom, is everything okay? What's going on? Do you feel all right? How did you handle it? 
no, I did nothing. I did absolutely nothing and pretended it didn't happen. <laughs> what do you mean? Did I do something? Swooped it um, under the rug. <laughs> I absolutely pretended it did not happen. I moved to LA two weeks after that or whatever. And she came out to visit for spring break that year. And I remember, you know, again, like early, early stages, there's it, things are so minimal. And so, you know, maybe there's one or two things. And then I, I didn't say anything to anyone at all about it. And so a year and a half after the college graduations, my birthday, my parents had flown out and I had started dating my husband a couple months before. And so it was the first time they were meeting him. And um, I dropped them off at the airport on at the end of their trip. And I came back to his apartment. And that was the first time I said it out loud. And I cried. And I just, I was like, there's something not right with my mom. And I know it's Alzheimer's. And I know this is happening. And he was like, no, no, oh, she was great. No, of course not. She seemed amazing. She was so, you know, clear and, and on top of it and, and, and whatnot. And I was like, you don't know her. Like, yeah. you don't know. Mm-hmm. There were Good. so many little things this weekend. And yeah. So then, you know, a little more denial. I can't remember. I, I don't remember the first moment I, or my brother mentioned it to my dad, but it became over the next, I would say, year or two years, actually, I think it was the, my brother and I sort of mentioning things to my dad. This is something's happening. It's not right. She was still teaching. She was a teacher for 35 years. Um, So she was still teaching, but she was starting to have some trouble in the classroom. And so her, she taught first grade. And so her school had given her a specialist position, a math specialist. So instead of her being with a classroom full of kids, she was one-on-one with kids, um, which was easier for her, you know, to do. And so those sort of things were happening. So I would say it was a probably two and a half years total from the first little, ooh, something's not right to when she, you know, saw, started seeing a doctor. What was her reaction when whoever it was said like, let's maybe go get checked out or maybe, you know, yeah. okay. <laughs> Rejection. Right. Yes. Um, denial. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, look, she'd seen, she'd seen her parents go through this. You know, at this point, my grandmother had only died like six years before. Like, yeah, it's so fresh. How could she be expecting this to be affecting her, her at that point in her life? And, and she would talk when she was younger, she would say like, when I get Alzheimer's and I'd be like, stop Mm -hmm. saying that. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, don't say that. But I don't think she meant when I get Alzheimer's at 54. Right. Yeah. Right. My life Um, is cut short because of it. Totally. Yeah. And did you know that was possible? I I didn't know until a few years ago that early Alzheimer's was a thing. (laughs) No, I mean, no, I didn't. Not that it's so common, but I didn't. I know that my grandfather, because it was before I was born, he passed away when I was 12, but I know he also, and and again, every case of Alzheimer's is different. Um, And so his Alzheimer's was very different than my mom, very, very different than my mom's. But like, I know he had symptoms in his fifties, just from stories from my relatives, but it wasn't like her. And I certainly had no idea it could happen that young. And I had no idea it could debilitate someone the way it debilitated my mom. No idea. Even after seeing my grandparents go through it. Right. Yeah. It's 
you, you keep thinking like, okay, this is as low as it can go. Right. Like I right. can't get any worse than this. And then, right. you know, two weeks later, you're like, oh, it can. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, we eventually got not to get so like dark so fast, but like, I, I feel like we got to the place where like, oh, it can't get any worse. And then we stayed there for six years or five years. Right. Totally. And it was like, was like yeah. And that was like, that was, yep. a, I, well, I don't think any time is more rough than the other times, but they're all rough, yeah. but yep. yeah. That's similar to Rachel's journey to not to speak for you, Rachel, but with the FTD journey, you know, sometimes people get a diagnosis and, and then they get the life expectancy of seven to 20 years or seven to 10 years. And it's like, wow, that's a long time to live in yeah. such a way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really your journey, Rachel, right? It was like totally. 10, 10 yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. So walk us through the diagnosis. Was it relatively easy because easy in the sense that you could pinpoint it right away because you had a family history and you kind of knew what to expect? Did you walk in and receive the diagnosis fairly quickly? Right. Well, I wasn't there. My dad, you know, was my mom's full-time caregiver by her side every step of the way. And in the beginning, really, he he let us in eventually, but in the beginning, really kept everything close to the chest all on his own in that very man way that they do. Um, and didn't want to burden us when we were like, Oh my God, she's our mom. But, um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so I wasn't there. I remember it was sort of like two diagnoses. It was like, and also, you know, nowadays in the last few years, you can get a more accurate diagnosis, but this was in 2007 ish, 2005, six, seven or so the diagnosis journey. So there wasn't anything at that point that could give a diagnosis like today. Um, it was still very much in the only way to properly diagnose is an autopsy days. And I mean, a diagnosis today is still hard to come by. It took a few different doctors, you know, a few different places. There was probably a moment where I was like, no, she's depressed. That's a common one. I feel like when someone's yeah. so young, oh, yeah. um, but I think we all knew. So it it was like, we just needed to keep pushing and find the right person who we eventually found the right doctor okay. who, you know, was able to help them as much as they could, but right. there wasn't really. I know what you're going to ask, Rachel. So no, it's your favorite question. Well, were they like, this is what it is. Here's a pamphlet. Like what, what did mm-hmm. they offer you? Well, my, again, my dad Your did dad, all this stuff. Right. So, so, you know, she took, you know, she did the medications, the, the Aricept and the whatever's that didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, went to a few support groups that were really unhelpful. I remember they went to a couple, uh, where it was, you know, there was some, a group for my dad and then respite for my mom mm-hmm. activity or whatever. And after two or three sessions, they kicked her out of the group because she was too disruptive. Mm-hmm. And my dad was like, well, then I, I can't come to this group right. and I guess I'm done. Right. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. Um, I guess I'll get no more support. And, mm-hmm. and my dad felt very alone and they lived in Lakeland, Florida, which is where I grew up, uh, from the time I was eight years old. And, you know, they had a few friends that stood by, but not many, um, a lot faded away as they do. And so my dad was really alone. At one point he tried to, tried to start his own support group, but couldn't, couldn't get it together. So, yeah, I mean, she started going to USF where there were a few trials Mm -hmm. to get on, you know, so we had that, I would say kernel of hope, although I, I don't feel like it was that, um, yeah you know, it, it was clear that the train had left the station. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. 
and your dad was there like, okay, I got to make a game plan, shift my whole life, figure out how yeah. this is going to work, how I'm going to care for her. Yeah. You know, and I know that a lot of people, especially, you know, in the FTD side too, where it's an early onset, it's like, it's not necessarily appropriate to put them in an adult daycare program right. with 80 year olds. And it's, yeah, it's very, very challenging and and I, I remember with my mom too in those early stages, the disease is like invisible. Like you, yeah. so she looked like a normal fifty-year-old, but was behaving right. in such a way that was like very anxiety-inducing in public. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're navigating, your dad's navigating all that like oh, by himself. What himself, do I do by himself? Yeah. And and it was so hard. Um, and it was clear that it was it was taking a toll on him. Um, he retired early. He wasn't old enough technically to retire, but he did because he needed, because eventually her school very respectfully was like, it's time for it's adult time. to retire. Yeah. They were lovely and kind and whatever. And we understood that. And so once she retired, it was like, well, what's, how's she going to be home? And it was clear within a few months that like she couldn't even stay home alone all day. Right. And so he retired and stayed with her and, and she, you know, I would say she progressed rather quickly from there and started doing a lot of pacing yep. all day. I was talking to someone recently who asked if my mom sundowned and I was like, yeah, all day. Right. And um, she got into a phase where she screamed well, all the time. Yeah. And my dad would holler out too. And I'm like, what does that mean? You yeah. can't talk, but like, can you like, do you, are you hot? Are you cold? Yeah. Yeah. You need to use the restroom and you're like a mime, you know, you're mm-hmm. like this way. Yeah. It's right. And the pacing. I remember pacing. that like the Shuffling. jolt when they get up, okay, uh, I got to go. And you're like, where are you going? <laughs> Sit down and then up again. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. you're, you're doing it too. You're, mm-hmm. you're like, okay. So it's it, that part. I, it was uh, so uncomfortable for me. It was so awkward. And you're like in the middle of a conversation and then you're like, do I follow you? Yeah. It was, did you guys live with your parents? I did at the beginning and then my dad, we put into a facility just because yeah. he, it was, he was very behavioral at yeah. the beginning of his yeah. disease and he just, yeah. well, and it's it. hard. I mean, you know, if it were the other way around, I don't know if my mom could have physically cared for my dad. I mean, right. my dad isn't necessarily a huge guy or anything. And my mom, thank God is, was not a large woman. And so therefore physically it was right. possible. Whereas yeah. That's just not a reality. No, like changing the diapers, yeah. all the things. Yeah. Oh yeah. Curing the food, everything. Yeah. So I lived with my mom for the couple of the early years of the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. We got the FTD diagnosis. And then once they said, oh yeah. And, uh, pretty sure she has ALS too. I was like, yeah, I'm moving home. Right. <laughs> yeah. This is going to be quick. And, um, yeah. I mean, at the end, my mom was I mean, she couldn't have been more than 90 pounds. And yeah. my dad is a large man who was caregiving for her. And even that was hard when you have yeah. someone who's who cannot respond to commands mm-hmm. and yeah. doesn't know how to move. It's, yeah. Who has no control over their, their totally. body. Yeah. Everything. Yep. It's. Uh, yeah. yeah. I know. The club. The club is. We're in really- this little club, guys. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Can you kind of walk us through just kind of like the progression? So what was it like to watch your mom at a very young age slowly lose the ability that you thought that she would have forever, right? Like we always think our parents are superheroes. What was that like for you? 
I mean, I wish there was a word that was worse than devastating. Mm. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm sure I'm, you know, talking to two people who probably completely understand what I'm saying. And it was, it rocked my world. You know, even though I had a front row seat to my grandparents' disease um, and my grandmother on my dad's side was mentally very healthy, but she had a stroke when I was in fifth grade and was battled that until, you know, I was 23. And and so she, you know, whatever. And so I, I, I had faced those things, but at the same time, I just didn't know that it would happen that early. And I had the naive thought that probably any child would have that my parents will live forever Mm -hmm. and that my mom will become my best friend and will talk all day on the phone. And, you know, and that's what she and her mom did for a long time because her mother didn't get sick until she was in her seventies. And so when that started to be taken away from me, I really, really struggled and was so wildly depressed and angry and yeah. And just had so much pent up frustration and yeah, just really struggled, really, really struggled. And again, like you guys, like I was, I was like 26 trying to like start Start my career. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm just thinking that you are living in Los Angeles, you know, you're probably going to fabulous parties and experiencing all these things that you never dreamed you could, or maybe you did, but the highest highs and the the highest, but did you feel like, cause I I felt like this in my normal little life. I felt like I was walking through the world and just no one had any idea Mm -hmm. the devastation that I was dealing with. Oh yes. And no one could relate and I couldn't Mm. even explain it. And I feel like that's almost part of the reason why we have this podcast is like, we want people to know like what this is really like, but like, how did you manage that when you're trying to, you know, be in your twenties and, and live, you know, your dreams in LA and how, like, how did you, how did you manage that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I started HFC. (laughs) I mean, you know, I, some early on, my mom didn't want us to tell anyone, which was brutal because I'm a share bear and I'm creative and I emote outward. Yeah. Um, I need to. And so that was really hard and it only contributed to my depression. Um, and eventually I kind of said, fuck it and started telling a few friends. And then one day I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to the, to the walk, like the Alzheimer's association walk. I want to, I feel like I need to do something. Um, and we went and, you know, Seth had been in a couple movies at that point. So they were like, what's Seth Rogen doing here? And, you know, came up to us. And then afterwards I got, you know, an email from them. It was like, do you guys want to be more involved? And I was like, no, no, I don't think we do. (laughs) And, um, and, you know, I, I was so angry. I, I really was so angry and I, I'd gone to a support group where it was, you know, an all ages kind of thing. And there was a guy who was like 55 talking about his mom who was in her eighties. And, you know, here I was like in my mid twenties and I was like, all I could do to not like hit this guy and be like, you don't understand. Right. And so anyway, so I eventually found a group through Lisa's place, you know, Lisa Gibbons, who's an amazing advocate for people with dementia. Um, 
had support groups and it was like, I don't remember if it was an under 30 or an under 40 group, whatever it was, was young people. And I was like, Mm -hmm. these people, they get it. They get it. And they know, and I feel seen. And that was kind of the beginning. So then we started going to a few Alzheimer's association events here and there. And then a friend came to me and was like, what if we throw an event, our own event and raise some money? And I was like, you know, so blown away. And I told him no at first, um, cause I didn't, you know, and I didn't, I didn't want to. And also, you know, again, like my mom was always so, even though at that point she was no longer verbal and communicative, but, um, I was like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know. But eventually we did. And, and we threw our first event and it was sort of the combo of me being in this support group with other young people. And the fact that then when Seth and I started talking about it, that other young people were contacting us mm-hmm. and being like, oh, I, I have a similar thing and, and I have a similar thing. And I, and I was like, oh, I'm not alone. And that anger that I carried around, I don't want to say disappeared because I still have it, but it was easier to live with because I also had along with me friends who right. understood. And that made carrying that load easier. And, and HFC gave me a place to put that energy Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there were weeks slash months even where, you know, I was supposed to be writing or turning something in and I just like couldn't, and I, all I could do was like do HFC stuff and think of programs or whatever it was. Cause it made me feel like I had control over what was happening to my mom, which I had no control over. Right. Maria and I are like, yep. Okay. Yes. Nodding really hard. Yeah. Yes. Yes. How we created this podcast turned community turned. I mean, we felt I was 21 when my dad first started to show signs. And I remember being like, how come all my friends, like, I don't, nobody else. What do, who do I, my dad's being weird. They'd be like, Oh, you know, let's go have a beer. And I'm like, okay, we like really, I'm, I don't know who to reach out to. Yeah. And it's amazing when you can find somebody who gets it and they're like, Oh yeah, my mom or my dad used to do that. You're like, okay, I'm not weird. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not that like black sheep, you know, it's Mm -hmm. such a, it's such a breath of fresh air. Yeah. It's amazing what it can do for you. Yeah. Everyone just wants to be seen. Totally. Do you know how we met? This just goes along with this point. We met on Instagram, me and Rachel. Yeah. Over this? Over this. We only met on Instagram through FTD hashtags. We've only been in the same room one time and we met each other for about a year. That's we produced amazing. the podcast for nine months before ever meeting. Ever met. Oh my God. I love that. Within like minutes, it was like this deep connection we had <laughs> because we understood what the other one was going through. And I mean, now she's like basically my sister. We have like a business together. But it's just it just goes to show that like yeah. it's it's so hard to find yeah. someone who gets it. And when you do, it's like very powerful. Totally. Oh, totally. yeah. No, I mean. Um, yeah. The, the people that are, that I met in that support group, a couple of them are still, they, they are, you know, they work with HFC today and That's are amazing. still involved and like, you know, cause that connection is so. It's like the ugh. purest connection you can have. It's like built on empathy and compassion and it's yeah. just all the keywords there. Totally. Lauren, back, back you- to Adele. Come on. <laughs> Let's okay. talk more about Adele. <laughs> God. We're weirdos that met online. Okay. I love that. So. 
obviously it sounds like Seth is an incredible partner to you, especially yeah. through HFC and everything. What are some of the things that you feel like he does or did or any of your friends do that really make you feel supported on this yeah. journey? I mean, I'm lucky that through HFC, it gives a way for my friends to support us, you know, cause I don't know about you guys, but like, it's hard for someone to support you. What do you want from someone? You know, and like, <laughs> how could anyone make this right? You know, <laughs> thing is like, it's such a hard position for your friends to be in. Right. Cause it's like, what, what can right. they do? What can anyone do? Right. And so, so I'm lucky that I have HFC for that, but you know, honestly, the best thing that Seth did for me was told me to go to therapy and get a therapist. Mm-hmm. That was the best thing. Oh, we and, talk and then, about this all the time. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And then and then two of my friends recommended a therapist. Like, you know what I mean? Like that is the best thing that any of them ever did and helped create HFC because we have some friends that, you know, founded it with us. But yeah, I, I, I'm so lucky that I have a, a partner who listens and, and, you know, a couple of really best friends who, who listen. My, my best friend lost her mom to breast cancer uh, when we were 24. Mm, and okay. so, and my best friend was like my sister to me. Um, we've been friends since we were eight. And so in a way, you know, even though my mom was physically there, we had a, a bond in yes. the, you know, yep. two young women without their moms kind of mm-hmm. thing. And so I was, you know, lucky that my very best friend could also sympathize. Yep. Yeah. She got yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I just want to take a minute to ask, do you understand the impact that you are making to everyone in this community? Do you ever stop and say, wow, I'm doing something pretty great over here? Oh, gosh. I mean, <laughs> she's like, yes, <laughs> of course. I feel uncomfortable. <laughs> um, uh, I, not, not, not to that specific definition, but I feel like the luckiest person who was dealt a bad hand. Mm. You know what I mean? But the fact that I have gotten, to make something of this terrible shit that happened, you know, and that I've gotten to connect to people and that the work that we do actually helps people's lives every day and today. And, and, you know, and I, I would be happy if we were also raising money for research and that would be important too. But like the fact that like we literally improve people's lives today makes me, and I know would make my mom feel okay. And feel like it's not in vain. And um, so the answer is I am, you know, a human who is, you know, insecure and Mm -hmm. self-deprecating in all the ways that most of us are. But at the same time, I feel so incredibly lucky that, you know, that I happened to fall in love with a wonderful person who became famous and then (laughs) was willing to use his face and his name to talk about something that is not considered that cool. Um, right. Shout out to Seth. Yay, Seth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you guys are doing incredible things, including I know that you do respite care grants. Yeah. And actually, we were speaking with someone who's been interviewed for a podcast that said her family was the recipient of one of oh, those cool. grants. Oh, that's amazing. And it made an incredible impact on her caregiving mm-hmm. for her father who that. has FTD. But in addition to that, I think just the fact, like you're saying, that you're talking about it, that you're shedding light on it, you're using your platform, and, you know, all the people that look up to you and Seth, you know, can see that, like, this is real. You know what I mean? It can happen to anybody. 
I know. And that's, and that's the thing. And, and that's, you know, to go back to kind of what we were saying before, it was like, you know, I was in this place, but you know, Seth's career was taking off. Like we're falling in love. Like we're in Los Angeles in our twenties. We're starting to make money. Like I'm starting to work and, you know, have access to things. But at the same time, I have this weight yes. that is there all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's a wild thing to balance. But you know, I think sharing our journey that like when we are dressed up and go to the Oscars, like, you know, before we stopped in and on our way and said hi to my mom who had no idea that we were there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you so. say it so beautifully too, because Marie and I are like, gosh, we had like a good day, but we don't want to have a good day because our parents are dying, but we want to be happy, but it feels weird to be happy, but it, they would want us to be happy. It's yeah. such a mind F. Yeah. Yeah. Early on in my mom's journey, I I wanted to talk to her about like how she was feeling and, and what she was thinking. And this was, you know, early enough that she was, you know, still able to do that. And it, I remember reading in like a teen magazine when I was growing up, like the best place to have a hard conversation is in the car because it, it, no matter it, you'll come to a natural end. They're like, they're trapped. Anyway, well, I asked my mom how she was feeling about having Alzheimer's in the car on the way to Target one day. And we ended up having this conversation in the Target parking lot in Lakeland, Florida. But I remember asking her, you know, how she was feeling and if she was scared. And she said that she wasn't scared for herself. She was scared for me and my brother and my dad. And that I was absolutely not to move home. And that I was to live my life. And, you know, I mentioned that she didn't want us to talk about it. And eventually I just got to the point where I was like, you know what? She wants me to live my life. I'm going to do what I got to do. And so that's how, you know. And you did. I got through it. Yeah. Now look at you. And now look at me. (laughs) Talking to you lovely women. But I think that it's. I, I think it's wonderful too that you also mentioned though that like you were struggling with depression and anxiety and yeah. you know just because we're continuing to live our lives just because I'm still you know taking Liam apple picking or whatever that doesn't that doesn't mean this isn't still going on but you have yeah. to like we say on our podcast we have to accept the good when you're having a good day have a good day when you're yeah. having a terrible Not having a good day day. Go go ahead. Just don't live there. You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I just think you're being so beautifully open. So I really, really appreciate that. Oh, well, thanks. It's, it's, you know, and it's one of those things that like, it's only served me truthfully more to be open about it. It's only allowed me to connect with more people to be open. So totally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to Adele's journey a little bit, how did things progress? So I would say, you know, she was diagnosed again. She has a few diagnoses around uh, the 2006 to seven mark. And by 2011, you know, she was, you know, starting to have bathroom issues, you know, really getting to the point where you couldn't, you couldn't get through to her sometimes if she was in a, a place, you know, I got married in 2011, which, you know, that was a, a hard moment, time, et cetera, because I had a lot of visions of what that meant with my mom and that wasn't what happened. And that was, that was really hard. And I remember at our rehearsal dinner the night before she was not in a good place. And when I saw her, I went up to her and I'd taken her shopping and she was wearing a fabulous outfit and I was so excited and she looked beautiful. And I went up to her and she was like, I want to go home. And she was 
not in a good place. Thank God the next day at our wedding, I don't know what happened, but she rose to the occasion. It was amazing and almost felt like she was present and like she knew what was happening, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, so around that time and then by January, 2012, February or so, it was, you know, was when I would say she started this sort of screaming thing where she would kind of scream for hours and hours. And so we, you know, I just kind of had an intervention with my dad um, and made him bring in some help, which he was okay with, but it just was tough. And they were living, like I said, in Lakeland didn't have family there and most of their friends had faded away. So we moved them to Los Angeles and we're fortunate that we could afford what was honestly an ideal situation. And they lived in a duplex. And so she lived on one side with a 24 hour caregiver and he lived on the other. And so he could be with her whenever he wanted, which was most of the time, but he could also go to his side and close the door. Um, And then, you know, we lived less than five minutes away and that's how, you know, she was from 2012 to when she passed away in February of 2020. Um, And I would say in maybe 2014 is when she stopped walking 2015, somewhere around there, you know, she wasn't verbal even before that. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like she, you know, the last five years or so was a shell Mm -hmm. of who she used to be. And she was cared for beautifully by caregivers and my dad who moved her from a bed to a chair, to a chair, to a bed and, you know, fed and bathed and, you know, lived somewhere inside the body of a woman who was in years young, but in mind, I don't know where she was. Yeah. Different realm for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's great that you got to be close to her. That's like, oh gosh. Yeah. What I usually did was I would like do quick visits because when I was there for a long time, I couldn't, it was too much. And so I would almost stop, not every single time, but whenever I'm a writer, so I work at home. So there were a lot of times, even before the pandemic where I didn't leave the house, but when I would, I would like just stop by on the way for 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. 15 minutes, 20 minutes, honestly, at the most, because after that much time, it just put me in such a place where I, Mm -hmm. I couldn't do it. Um, and so I feel really lucky that, you know, again, it was, I feel like we had the best of a bad situation. I remember that feeling where you're just like, I need to get out of here. Like it's overwhelm. And I just, I'm either going to cry or scream and I don't really want to do either. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I would feel bad because I would get so emotional sitting in front of my mom. My mom became nonverbal. Like it almost felt like she was diagnosed. And then the next day, like she couldn't speak and I just, but she had like the most beautiful, like animated eyes and I'd look at her and I just would burst into tears and I'm like, this isn't right. I don't want to make her feel bad, but it's just like, how can you not become overwhelmed with emotion looking at a parent that you adore that's like young Mm -hmm. and it's not supposed to be this way. And and Mm -hmm. how do you wrap your mind around that? And it's just... That's a lot. Terrible. Yeah. It's just terrible. Like it's just terrible. Well, let's, let's, let's flip the terrible. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Did you know that nutrition plays a big role in the health of our brains? That's why we love NeuroReserve's daily supplement, Relevate. Modeled after the Mediterranean and Mind diets, every serving of Relevate contains 17 brain healthy nutrients for less than buying a cup of coffee each day. We especially love NeuroReserve because it was founded by our friend, Ed Park, who dedicated his life to improving brain health after losing his father to Parkinson's and dementia. 
Ed has given our listeners a special code for 15% off all orders of Relevate. So head over to neuroreserve.com and learn more about their evidence-backed product, Relevate. Use code REMEMBERME at checkout for 15% off all orders, including subscriptions. That's neuroreserve.com, code REMEMBERME. And we're back. Let's talk about Adele before. Let's get to like the nitty gritty of who she was before. Okay, great. So, Rachel, this is this is your this, this is, is my this is this my is... time to shine. Yeah. Um. Okay. So my the question I always like to start with in this portion of the happy part of the podcast is, what was she like as a mom? Mm-hmm. How could you describe her as a mom? Oh God, she was so giving as a mom. I think that is like the one word that I can just described to her across the board. She was so selfless. She, you know, put herself last, which I don't think is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and in today's world, if there are mothers listening, don't do that. Um, okay. I won't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, don't do that. She really, she loved being a mom. I felt so loved and adored by her. She would always tell me that I was her best friend. And I'd be like, you're not my best friend. When I was young, which is so terrible. And even though she was a full-time teacher, she somehow managed to be a full-time mom. When I was in elementary school, she somehow managed to be like the room mom all the time. And like was the mom chauffeur as much as she could, you know, was at all the gymnastics meets and then the cheerleading events. And she was just there. She cared and loved and her dream was to be a mom, you know, and she excelled at it. That's for sure. That's so sweet. And noting to myself not to put myself last. Don't put yourself last. Such a bad example for your children. I know. My kids are always like, why is mommy so tired? I'm like, because I don't have a life outside of you. That's why I'm so tired. Because I've given you everything. (laughs) Do you see? Look at me. Yeah. You know, and like, and my mom did it. And like, there were, you know, so few times where I feel like she said that. But, you know, looking back, it's so clear. She gave us everything. Oh, my gosh. Can you tell us a little bit about her days as a teacher? I mean, I feel like just when you say someone was a first grade teacher, I already get a picture in my mind of who they are as a person. Mm -hmm. But can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. And she taught special ed before that. So that can color it even more, I think. Yes. Um, She just really loved teaching. Like, I think that she, you know, she told me that growing up, all she wanted was to be a teacher and be a mom. And she, she got her master's degree in the early seventies, which in teaching was not something that a lot of women were doing at that point, but she was like, she was an excellent student Mm -hmm. and she just really always strived to be, you know, the best at whatever she was doing. And so she was really committed. There were so many nights where she was staying up late grading papers and she, you know, get really personally involved in her students' lives and, you know, was really um, just passionate about always, if there was a new seminar to learn, she just really believed in education and in public education and that everyone deserved, you know, a good education. She worked in a school that um, didn't have a ton of, ton of money or anything. And, um, you know, she would put her own money into stuff and decorate things and make it cute and fun. And, you know, she was just really passionate about it. That's so sweet. I have a first grader right now and I'm like, okay, do they do that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She just really loved it. 
it sounds like your parents had like a really beautiful relationship. Sounds like your dad was an incredible caregiver. Do you want to tell us a little bit about their relationship? Sure. Yeah. I mean, when I was younger, I was really embarrassed of them because they were, I guess, cute probably. And I was like, ew. Um, And I thought they were so dorky. Um, They had a very respectful partnership. We were the kind of family that had dinner together every night. And, you know, they would talk about each other's days and ask each other about each other's days and were so involved in what the other one was doing because they cared. And now I know that's such a privilege to grow up with that model, but I, I didn't certainly didn't appreciate at the time. Now I do. They were, you know, just hardworking people. Like my dad had a very normal job. He was the manager of a manufacturing plant. It wasn't, you know, anything crazy and they were just committed to me and my brother. They took so few like vacations by themselves. They went on only a few dates alone. Like everything was just the four of us. That's yeah. so Such a sweet family. Yeah. Now, when it came to, you know, wanting to pursue like filmmaking and writing, was your mom like a big cheerleader for you in that regard and telling you like, go get them in LA or how was that? (laughs) You know, it's so funny. I recently have pulled out my journals for a project that I'm writing and have gone through it. And I was interesting reading about it. I, I was an artsy kid, um, always really interested in, in art, visual art. And also I enjoyed acting, even though there wasn't a lot in my small town. And it's funny when I got into just from a wait list that in my small town at middle school for the arts when I was in seventh grade and I wanted to be in the theater department. And my mom was like, there's no future in acting. You also <laughs> want to be a fashion designer. I think you should do visual arts. I don't know why she thought for some reason that fashion design was a more stable career than acting, but whatever that was in her head. So I did art and that sort of set me on this path. Of eventually I went to school for fashion design at FIT in New York before I went to film school. And she was really supportive of that. And she thought that was really cool. And I think she, she was very practical. My dad is the the dreamer, the one who was like, you can Mm -hmm. do whatever you want. Make sure your job is something you enjoy, not something you hate. And she was much more practical. So she was supportive, but she would always be like, well, I want you to go to FIT, but if you don't go to a normal state school, what if you don't have a normal college experience? Mm. And it's like, she would say those things. But, you know, by the time I was moving out here, you know, she was so excited. And I think I mentioned earlier that she had come out here her first spring break when I lived in Los Angeles by myself. She came out by herself. Um, and we had Aww. like a little mom daughter trip a couple of oh. days, which is so special because that's the only time we had that as grownups, as I was a grown up, she was grown up the whole time, but, um, <laughs> as I was a grown up and, um, yeah, we went, we went to dinner, you know, and it was, it was a grown up time and mm-hmm. she was certainly excited about it. And that's, so yeah. Cool. Oh my gosh. This is the best part of the podcast. Is there any part of your day or part of your routine or things that pop up that just make you think like, that's my mom, or that's something she passed on to me? Like, how do you, how do you still carry her with you during the day? I mean, it's weird. I don't know about you guys, but when she passed away, I felt like she was with me so much more than when she was mm-hmm. alive for the last few yes. years. Yes. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and it happened really quickly. It was like, mm-hmm. and I don't, I'm not super religious and I don't know, whatever, whatever. But it was like, almost <laughs> like as soon as she died, I was like, is she here? Right. Why do Mom? I feel her <laughs> inside me more? Yep. Like, right. and so- I just kind of feel her like power a little bit. She was 
she wasn't like a wishy-washy person. And so, and I, I, I can be definitive a lot of the time. And so I think I, I find her in those moments. It's funny. I don't make the bed a lot, but when I do, I always <laughs> tell my husband, like, I'm doing this because my mom is here. <laughs> is watching. She's, She's watching. watching. <laughs> she, this would make her happy. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> what do you think she would think of HFC? She would be so proud. I think we, we, we kind of touched on how, you know, she was someone who like was really passionate about things she cared about and she was a fighter and like, you know, if she was going to teach, she wanted to like be the best teacher. And, Mm -hmm. and so I think she would be happy that, you know, that we're doing something. She was like a real doer, you know, Mm -hmm. she like was big on making a list and checking things off. And she was a really (laughs) productive person. She could get so much done in a day. She was constantly like, she was teaching. She was on her temple board. She was, you know, on her school board. She was just doing a million things. And I think that like, she would be so proud of HFC helping people, you know, like we've touched on with the support groups and the care grants and with our programs and caregiver training and the fact that we've really like attacked it and, mm-hmm. and are doing what we can. Cause that's, I think what she would have done if she had the access to start an organization, she would have just, you know, done everything she possibly could, which is, you know, what we're trying to do at least. A lot of our listeners follow you guys a lot. (laughs) Um, And so I think they're just going to be like beside themselves when they see that we're talking about your mom. So um, and that you took the time to meet with us is just like such a gift. Oh, that's so nice. It's a gift from our parents, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Leah and Frank are like, here you go. Here's Lauren. And Adele is up there like, it's like, oh, hi, oh, look at our daughter. Oh, oh, they're talking about oh, women. Oh, oh, they're talking it. about turning lemon into lemonade. Can you imagine how she would want to be remembered? I, I think she would be really mad about what happened to her. And she would be so happy that we did something about it. And I think she would want to be remembered as someone who taught her kids to not take it sitting down. I think she would want to be remembered as someone who fought for the things that were important to her and that she instilled in her children to do the same. It's beautiful. Okay. This is our favorite part for anyone who's new listening. We always want to end on our loved one's words. We want them to have the last word. So Lauren, you are going to read something that your mother wrote and can you just give us a little backstory I can. So in, let's see, in 2007, March 30th, I emailed my mom asking for the Passover recipes, um, the matzo balls, the kugel, et cetera, et cetera, because I was having a Seder. And this is the email she wrote back. Um, The subject line, of course, is Passover recipes. It says, Dear Lauren and Danny, the first recipe is to follow these directions. Number one, call the airline of your choice. Book flights to Tampa for you and or Seth. Go to the airport. Get on an airplane. Fly to Tampa. Watch for our car baggage claim. Come home to celebrate with us. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We release new episodes each week now on Tuesdays, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. 
If you want to connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram at Remember Me Podcast, or you can go to our website, RememberMeFTD.com. And if you want more Remember Me, check out our brand new members only site, Remembers Only. You can sign up at RememberMeFTD.com slash join R-O. This podcast is produced by Maria Kent Beers and Rachel Martinez, and the beautiful music you hear is a song called So Damn Lucky by Bailey Kent. I guess it's I-